0: I shared about a fortnight ago how I am very injury-prone. Uh, every time I exercise, I seem to get injured. I visited uh, Myung's CG group earlier this week, and I had a few people share about how exercise led to injury. Um, some Someone said humorously that I feel like I'm allergic to exercise, and maybe that's me as well. Uh, I, I suffered, I shared a fortnight ago, I think about two or three concussions, um, a broken finger that's whole held together by a metal plate and six pins. I can't straighten my pinky. Very injury prone, torn rotator cuff in both shoulders. But I loved soccer as much as I hated exercise. uh, I loved soccer and I picked the position on the soccer field that requires the least amount of running, the goalkeeper position. Uh, And I loved that role. I loved the idea of throwing my body on the line. And it was like a very rough position to play in. Cause I'm not a big guy. I'm I'm, I'm a short guy, I'm not like muscular. I'm not like you know. There's a few guys that work out. I'm not that big, um, and so having to get physical with guys taller than me, bigger than me. There's something about that role that it's like your testosterone levels just make you very aggressive. Cause you have to be in that role. And I remember when I was younger, there was this striker, this this. A striker is like a forward positioned player, the goal scorer for the other team. Every time I'd jump up to catch the ball, he'd get very physical with me. He'd barge me to the ground. or if, Even if I caught the ball, he'd push me to the ground. And he got to a point where I had enough. This is before I became a Christian, by the way. It was, it was like I was like 18 at the time. And he pushed me, and I didn't fall down this time. And he was about this far away from me. And I grabbed the ball, and I threw it in his face. I wasn't a Christian, by the way. But ironically, this was a church competition. I went to church to play soccer. And I remember one of the deacons ran onto the field and he had to physically restrain. I'm not a violent guy, by the way. I was, I'm not a, those of you guys that know me, no, I'm not a violent guy. I'm not an aggressive guy. I'm usually quite passive. I'm usually like the guy that people like walk all over. Um, but I, I got so annoyed every time because this guy was like twice my size. He didn't need to do that. But he did it because he thought, you know, I'm going to intimidate this guy. And I threw the ball in his face. And before I knew it, this guy was trying to lunge at me. Someone was holding him back. And then one of the deacons was like holding me back just as well as well because this guy was a lot bigger than me. He would have dismantled me. But he got physical. And I remember that deacon whispered something in my ear to try and calm me down. He said, Jay, Jay, Jay. Losing is winning. Losing is winning. He said it in Korean. But he kept saying it. Losing is winning. And I was like so angry. And as I died there, I got confused. I, I turned around and I looked at him. And I started to get angry at him. <laughs> what does that even mean? Losing is winning. Like imagine if, you know, I'm a, I love watching the UFC. Imagine a UFC fighter gets knocked out. If you lose, you lose. It's not. Oh, you're won because you're lost. That's ridiculous. It's a backward statement. And I, it just as I was preparing this sermon, this passage reminded me of. The, I've got so many suppressed memories. That memory just came out for some reason, and I remembered that deacon whispering to me in my ear, "Jay, losing is winning." To this day, I don't know what that means. But we find Jesus giving a lot of backward statements like that throughout the Gospels. For example, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's a pretty backward statement. Or when I am weak, this is Paul, when I am weak, I am strong. Or for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's a backward statement, and we find that again in today's passage, and we'll come to that in a moment. But as I mentioned last week, in Mark's gospel, in the last week or so, we reached kind of the halfway point. If up until chapter 9, Mark's gospel, like the first eight or nine chapters is part one, then from chapter 9 onwards, we're kind of in part two of Mark's gospel. Part one, up until chapter 8, focused on Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee, But from chapter 9 onwards, the the trajectory of Jesus' ministry, like the destination of where he heads towards, starts to move intentionally towards Jerusalem. Whilst the theology of the first eight chapters is about the kingdom, the latter half of Mark's gospel seems to be focused on the cross and the resurrection. In the first half of Mark's gospel, it's a very public ministry. Remember, there were like tens of thousands of people following Jesus wherever he went. In the latter half of Mark's gospel, you'll find it becomes much more private as Jesus focuses on training his disciples only. It becomes much more scaled down and private. And we see that in today's passage. In the opening two verses, it says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples. So, as Jesus starts his journey towards Jerusalem, the day of his arrest and eventual crucifixion is getting nearer and nearer. And so, Jesus wants to use every remaining minute to train up and equip his disciples. And it seems in this passage, he's using this private time. This is like the one of the rare times that there's not a crowd of people following them. He uses this moment to teach and train his apostles and to explain to them what's coming. Verse 31, the Son of Man, this is him talking to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He's repeated this a few times earlier on. But the problem, according to verse 32, was that they didn't understand what this meant. And not only did they not understand what it meant that the Son of Man would die and then rise again, they didn't just not understand this, but the passage tells us they were too afraid to ask. They had no idea what He was talking about, but they were at a point where they were like they'd heard it so many times, they were almost ashamed to ask Jesus, "What does that mean?" Because they didn't want to look dumb. Now, in hindsight, 2,000 years later. Uh, We have the advantage of knowing exactly what Jesus meant because we have the completed Old and the New Testament. And so verse 31, this idea of the Son of Man dying and rising again, to us today, it doesn't seem that hard to understand. It's like, yeah, I get it. He's going to die for the sins of mankind and because he's God and because he wants to give us the seal of salvation, the assurance that all sins are paid for, he rises again from the dead. We get it. But you have to remember that the disciples back then, their understanding of a Messiah wasn't a spiritual one. They were expecting a military Messiah, a political Messiah. It wasn't salvation of sins that they were expecting, but they were expecting salvation from Rome. They wanted and were expecting the Messiah not to establish a spiritual kingdom but a physical one. They were expecting Israel as a kingdom to kind of regain the glory days of David and Solomon from the Old Testament. And so this talk about the Messiah dying and rising again, it it baffled them. What are you talking about? You're the one that's meant to establish God's eternal kingdom. What do you mean you're going to die? And they just, they didn't get it. No matter how many times Jesus explained it, they didn't understand what Jesus meant And because Jesus had explained it so many times, they stopped asking questions because they were embarrassed. And I can sympathize with this because I know a lot of you guys don't know, but I I have trouble hearing out of my left ear sometimes. The doctors don't know what's wrong with it. Um, Sometimes when I'm sleeping, if I'm sleeping on my right ear and my wife says something, I can't hear it. So if I want to go to sleep, I'll roll over to my right ear while she's talking to me. <laughs> but sometimes my wife will say something to me and I genuinely can't hear. And I'll say, sorry, could you repeat that? And I'll say that the first two times. But if I don't, if I still can't get it about three or four times later, I'll just nod. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't want to be rude. Because I know she finds it annoying. And it's not, it's not just her. Like, people, even at work, when I get someone to repeat something three or four times, a normal person will be, they'll be like, oh, forget about it, forget it. And so I'll nod. Yeah, 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 I I think that too. And I usually get away with it until I realize the last thing that they said ended with a high inflection because, you know, then it's a question. And (laughs) you just kind of stare at them and think, oh yeah, I think that too, and you hope that that, that that will suffice. But going back to the apostles, they were struggling to understand what Jesus was saying about the Messiah. They didn't understand what the Messiah was meant to be all about. They didn't understand the mission of the Messiah. Their minds weren't set on a suffering Messiah, but a warrior king, a military Messiah that would conquer the world And given that this was their mindset, they didn't ask Jesus questions, but they started bickering amongst themselves. Verses 33 and 34 read, and they came to Capernaum, which is where Peter's home was. That was where the ministry headquarters was. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So this journey that began in northern, north of Galilee, that began on a mountain at the Transfiguration, they came down the mountain and they started heading down south. And as Jesus is leading the way, you know, they're going on this hike towards Capernaum. Jesus is leading the group at the front. He can hear his apostles behind him arguing, bickering amongst themselves as they're heading to Peter's home. Now, on this journey, as they're arguing, Jesus doesn't stop and ask them, what's all this commotion? He doesn't say anything until they arrive at Peter's home, presumably because he doesn't want to draw attention. Because remember, part two of Mark's gospel, I mentioned it becomes much more private, Much the the teaching and the preaching of Jesus' ministry becomes much more tailored to the disciples rather than uh the wider you know community of Galilee and so he waits until they get to Peter's home and when they arrive that's when he asks what were you guys talking about what was all that huckass that was going what was that what was that commotion and he asks them knowing full well what they were arguing about because like I said they were still of the mindset that Jesus would be like the new Caesar or the new Alexander, or the Napoleon of that day. They thought he would rule the world. And if you're following the guy that's going to become the leader of the free world, if you are his hand-picked disciples, you'd kind of wonder, I wonder what my position's going to be once he becomes the ruler of the world. And they were arguing amongst themselves what the hierarchy would be. Who would be second in charge? Who would be the right-hand man? Who would be the left-hand man of Jesus? And you know what? Like sometimes we have sometimes like a, a high view of the apostles, sometimes a bit too high. And I think partly it's to do with artwork. I love, like, I love looking at art, especially art that depicts scripture Um, but if you've seen the artwork of like you know um the finger of god and you see like this you guys this is like yeah anyways uh and then you see paintings of apostles or you know if you go to like a traditional anglican church or even a catholic church the stained glass windows of the apostles it's usually like them looking into the heavens with their face shining and they've got a halo above their head And we have this kind of misconception that these these 12 apostles were a gentle bunch, um, that they were just meek, passive individuals. Not so. If you read throughout the New Testament, you'll find that these apostles were a rough bunch. Um, Peter, if you read through some of the stuff he says, he's a very hard-headed, stubborn individual. Um, James and John, two brothers that the New Testament says their nickname was Boanerges, which literally translates to sons of thunder. Uh, You don't get compared to something like thunder if you've got a gentle personality. Um, And so bearing this in mind that this was a group of rough individuals, you can imagine the bickering, the insults that they would have hurled at each other, Uh, particularly, I think, from Peter, James, and John, because Peter was a stubborn fisherman. James and John were the sons of thunder. And I say particularly from these three, not just because of their personality, but because of what happened a few, passage, a few verses prior in chapter 9. Remember the transfiguration? Who did Jesus pick to take up with him? Peter, James, and John. And so as they're arguing amongst themselves, you can almost picture these three stubborn Rough individuals arguing with the other disciples. Who do you think is going to be the right-hand man? Me. Oh, oh, you think you're going to be the right-hand? I'm sorry. How many times did you see Jesus unveil his humanity? How many times did you catch a glimpse of his God, godness, of his divinity? Oh, sorry, zero? Zero? Did, did, sorry, did you say zero? You can always picture the, 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 these three apostles saying that. They're saying, well, we caught a glimpse of his divinity. So who do you think deserves the highest spot when Jesus becomes ruler of the free world? Can you tell me you how many? Zero? Or maybe you should be quiet. And so Jesus probably out of frustration gets them, once they get the Peter's home, he sits down. That's what the passage says. He sits down. And in Jewish tradition, rabbinical tradition, when a rabbi teaches, oh, sorry, sits down, it usually means I'm going to start teaching. You better listen. Like in a Protestant church, in a Pentecostal church, the preacher stands up. Uh, in a Jewish synagogue or you know, a teaching setting, there's usually a chair and a table, and they sit down and teach. If you Google you know, sermons from rabbis on YouTube, you'll see that they're sitting down. And so Jesus sits down, and he gets the d- disciples to gather around him. And he, he shares a kind of parable once they gather. And he begins it with a paradoxical statement. You know, I mentioned a backward statement, losing is winning. He shares a backward statement that blows their mind and just turns the values of the world upside down. He says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You're going to be first, you're going to be last. It's almost like he's telling the disciples. You know, you're talking about becoming the GOAT, the greatest in the kingdom, the highest title, prestige, and honor. Is that what you want? Then you have to be last. You have to be a servant. And we know through the other gospel accounts that Jesus isn't being philosophical here. He's not trying to make like an abstract metaphorical statement about what it means to be first and last. He is literally saying, if you want to be first, You have to be last. And we know this because in John's Gospel, we find in chapter 13 that Jesus demonstrates firsthand about what it means to be last because he washes his disciples' feet shortly before he's about to be arrested, tortured, and killed. And when you wash feet back then, In the culture, the Greek, Greco-Roman culture, the servants and the slaves washed the feet of their master. And it's not like, you know, like you might think, well, washing feet, big deal. But you have to remember back then the roads, there were no cars. The roads were filthy. How do you think people traveled back then? Horseback, camels, donkeys. What do donkeys do once they eat? They poop. The roads were covered with animal dung. So if you had to travel down a road, you'd be stepping on animal dung. So you'd come home and you'd have your sandals covered in animal dung and the servant would be the one tasked with hand-washing your feet. And Jesus does this for his disciples to show them. In order to be first, you have to be last of all and servant of all. But here's the thing. And this might sound controversial, maybe not. but serving sometimes isn't that hard, depending on who you're serving. Like I have a day job three days a week at AIA. Um, but if you have a secular job, you know that it's not hard to serve your boss. It's not hard. To, to be a good worker, to get your work done, to be productive. And you work hard because there's an incentive, that next reward, that next promotion, that next pay rise. If you work hard, you know there's an incentive at the end of it. Serving isn't always hard. If my wife asks me to do the dishes or you know vacuum the floor, I'll do it. It's not that physically hard. I'm not going to be like a cripple after I vacuum or do the dishes. But Jesus doesn't just want service because he adds a parable, a dimension to what it means to serve. In verses 36 and 37, it says that he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, I say that Jesus uses this child as a parable. And a parable usually means that, it, you know, it, it represents something. Um, and to understand what this parable, the power of this parable, uh, you have to understand that the word for child in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus would have sp- spoken, the, the, the word for child, it's talia. It's the same word for a slave or a servant. Ironically, it's the same word for lamb, as in the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus uses this play on words in this parable to explain who we are to be. That we are to be a people that have a servant heart but not only that, to understand that we're not serving an agenda, a ministry, or a cause. That when we serve, we're serving people. Now, if you look at a child uh, today, we look at, I, I've, I spoke earlier about how precious uh, our children's ministry is. Uh, When we look at children today, culturally, we look at them as being very precious. Children are a generation that needs to be protected, that need to be taught well, that need to be disciplined well, that need to be raised on the word of God. We look at them, we look at a baby, and we're like, this is such a precious child. But back then, uh, it it was a little bit culturally different. And the reason for that was that the mortality rate of babies was really high back then. Uh, and not just in Bible times, but even up until about 100 years ago, the mortality rate of babies was incredibly high. Uh, back in the days of the New Testament, uh, it was almost unlikely for a baby to reach five years of age. Uh, most, most babies died before they reached the age of five. And so babies actually back then weren't considered that significant in society. Um, They were, in fact, considered a burden. They had no power. They had no honor. They had no status. They weren't self-sustainable. They'd suck up resources and probably would die. And so they were viewed as quite insignificant, so insignificant, in fact, that Bible teachers, the rabbis of the day, wouldn't actually teach a child until he reached 12 years of age. Because they considered, until you reach 12, you're not really worth investing in. Children had no status back then. And so in light of that, Jesus teaches that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And when he talks about servanthood, he's not just talking about serving upwards. Not just about serving your superiors, but serving downwards. Serving your inferiors. And if we are to be captive to the word of God, we have to understand that according to Christ, according to the words of Jesus, servanthood is the true way to firstness. Not first, but first. Number one, firstness in God's eyes. Not just serving our superiors, but being intentional about serving our inferiors. And what's remarkable is that Jesus gives a promise in verse 37. He says, whoever receives one such child, whoever receives the insignificant, a generation that we think, you know, we don't, we don't really care about them. Whoever receives these people in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So whoever, whoever receives Talia, this child, this insignificant people group, the servants, the lowest of society. You receive these people, then you receive Christ. This is why when we walk a life of obedience, where we serve other individuals out of selfless and sacrificial love, when you're living in the midst of obedience, have you ever noticed that you feel like this with God? When you're serving other people sacrificially, selflessly, at cost to yourself, you feel like God's right there. Have you ever noticed that when you're serving sacrificially out of love and mercy and showing people grace, have you ever noticed that you pray more intentionally for that person? You start to be more intentional about desiring to know God's heart, how to move, how to act, how to better serve, how to better live a life of love, grace, and mercy. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus says that's how it's going to work. But the reason it works is because this insignificant individual is an individual that is made in the image of the Most High God. Whether society deems them significant or insignificant, whether you come to church and think like they're not that important, you have to understand that this person is a a person made in the image of God, and because they're made in the image of God, they are designed to be the object of our service, our love, our grace, our mercy, our time. We had a vision team meeting on Friday. And not to single up the first year uni students, but we are constantly thinking about you. Not to make it awkward. Okay, I made it awkward. But we are thinking about you. We are constantly in prayer for you. There are people constantly in prayer for you. We want the best for you. And you know what? These words that Jesus shared... The first must be last, the last must, last will be first. Um, you know, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. This idea of receiving the insignificant generation to receive Christ, this must have been stirring for the apostles and particularly for the apostle John because he begins a dialogue with Jesus in the very next verses from verses 38 to 41. You know, a lot of people think that verses 38 onwards is just a separate conversation that happens later on. But verses 38 to 41, I'll read it. It says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for one or for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. But truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, like I said, a lot of people read these, this conversation between John and Jesus and think it's a conversation that happened later on. And they think that this is an example of John snitching on people, like dobbing on this guy. Jesus, this guy is not of us. Not of us. Sorry, my hands. It's not of us. We need to stop this guy. People think that John was snitching on this guy. I personally don't think that's what's going on here. I actually think that Jesus was listening to the words of Jesus in the preceding verses, that we have to receive everyone as an image bearer of God. And I genuinely think that the Holy Spirit convicted his heart and brought him to a place of repentance. And so I don't think it's a case of John snitching. I think it's a case of John repenting and confessing before Christ. Because he's just heard that we're meant to serve the servant. We're meant to receive everyone like as if we're receiving Christ. I think he felt guilt after hearing Jesus' teaching about the way he and the apostles had treated this man. Because he was this man casting out demons, doing kingdom work in the name of Jesus. He wasn't blaspheming blaspheming Jesus. He wasn't opposing Jesus. And yet the apostles rebuked him. Why did they rebuke him? Well, John confesses this to Jesus. He says, we rebuked him. Not because he wasn't a believer, but because he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of us. He wasn't part of our inner circle. In their eyes, John realized that they saw that this man, they've reached this erroneous conclusion that this man doesn't have equal status to us or greater status to us, and therefore we're going to tell him to stop and desist. And John, having just heard this brief parable teaching from Jesus, felt a heavy conviction, and he confesses to Jesus. This is what we did to this guy. And Jesus concludes the passage by rebuking, correcting John and the apostles, and stressing for unity amongst his kingdom. And that's how the passage ends. You know what's crazy about my sermons is that every week I make the word count shorter and shorter, but the length doesn't seem to change. I am trying so hard, but... We've got only one application and one point I want to conclude on, and that is that Christ desires a heart of service. Christ desires a heart of service. It's not a surprising point based on what we just went to went through. But um, I love listening to stand-up comedians, and there is one comedian. I've never heard of him before. His name was Ronnie Cheng, I think his name is. Some of you guys might know. Um, but he was doing this a little bit about tiger mums and tiger dads. If you're Asian, you know a lot of Asian parents are tiger mums and tiger dads. It's like a stereotype. Uh, I grew up in a household where my mom was quite the tiger mom. Uh, she made me read like every book. She made, once I read all the books in the children, like, children's section of the library, she gave me a dictionary and said, start reading from A to Z. Um, and I was like, oh, this is boring. Then she gave me an encyclopedia. The A of the, like back when encyclopedias were a thing. And she like, read from A. And I remember I read like aardvark. You guys know what an aardvark is? I was like reading about I was like, But this, this comedian was talking about how every Asian parent, first generation Asian parent, wanted their child to be a doctor. you got to be a doctor to make it in this life. Um, but he makes an interesting observation about the desires of their parents wanting their child to be a doctor. Because it's a noble profession, isn't it? A doctor. You're helping people that are sick to get them better. If they're unwell, get them to a place where their body is just physically restored. But he makes a a humorous observation that for Asian parents, serving and helping people is like at the bottom of the list of reasons why they want their kid to become a doctor. Um, They want their kid to be a doctor so that they can have prestige, honor, and wealth, like Helping people probably doesn't even make the list, if at all, of reasons why they want their child to be a doctor. But what we learn from Jesus today is that that mode of thought doesn't translate across when it comes to walking with him. Because that mode of thought governs everything that we do in this life, whether it comes to work, whether it comes to training at the gym, whether it comes to anything. We want that honor and prestige of making it to the top. And kind of like the disciples, we have this tendency of wanting to get to that place so that people can honor us. In the workplace, you want to get to the highest level so that people can serve you, respect you. Oh, Look at at how far that guy got. That That guy's just, that guy's a genius. We want to be able to say, made it to the top. Because we want to be served. We want that honor and prestige. And at previous churches, uh, I've encountered people who had that mindset embedded even in the way they did church. And maybe this is some of you, where I would go up to them and I would say, do you want to serve in this? I mean, we've got these areas where we're recruiting, do you want to serve? And they would say, you know what? I'm here to just attend church so I can be served. And as people serve me and I grow and I become closer to God, then you know maybe in a year or so I'll think about serving. Um, but Jesus flips that mode of thought on its head with this paradoxical statement. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and not just last, but servant of all. Jesus says, You want to be first in God's eyes? Then be a servant. Serve. You want to be close to God? You want to receive Christ? You want to receive intimacy? Then serve. But you know what? Even in an act of service, it's easy for service to become selfish. Because it can be about my gain. Like I mentioned earlier, serving, working hard in the workplace. The end goal of that could just be my gain rather than God's glory, that next promotion, that next pay rise. And that's why Jesus follows that paradoxical statement with this parable using the child. Whoever receives one such child, or Talia, in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Whoever receives one such child who sees the insignificant people group and receives them, they receive me. Why? Because ministry and church isn't about serving a generic entity. When it comes to serving in all aspects of God's kingdom, we are serving people. And Christ calls us to receive people in his name. This means that it's not just a mindless action. But when we look to the generation of children in FLM, Kids Connect, we see them as precious. We understand that they need to be served. And I'm an individual that has capacity to serve and I'm built to serve. They are built in the image of God and designed to be the object of my service Love, mercy, grace, my time, my sacrifice. And I'm an individual that God has equipped to fill that position. And we can't be impartial about it. We can't look at this people group and think, you know what, not for me. I'm not trying to shame people into serving you in Kids Connect. It could be anyone. It could be... Someone that you see at church that you might think is a bit weird. Think, you know what? This is an individual that's made in the image of God. And this person, I'm going to be intentional about praying for them and making them the object of my time, my love, my grace, my sacrifice. Doesn't matter who it is. I'm weird. You guys know I'm weird. And so I'm going to conclude today's sermon by reading a passage from Matthew's gospel. Um, and it comes from Matthew 25 verses 34 to 40. And it says, then the king, this is the words of Jesus. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Jesus says, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. You want to feel close to Christ? You must be last of all and servant of all. Let's pray. Father, so often it's easy to try and fuse the ideologies of the world, the thought process of the world, and try to fuse that with the kingdom of God. Uh, But so often when we come to the Gospels and we open the Scriptures and hear you speak, we see a backward statement that, that just seems to flip that mode of thought on its head. And sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to bring us to a, com- a place of conviction, because many times we do have it backwards, out of pride. But we think we know what's best for the kingdom. We think we know what's best in how to 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 push a ministry forward. But Lord, even if it it is backwards to what the world says even if it is backwards to what the world says is the recipe for success. Lord, let us be a people that would rather fail and be obedient to your word rather than to su- succeed in a secular sense and be dis- disobedient. And so, Lord, we pray that as we unpackaged today's passage about the first being last, the last being first, about this call to be the dis- a servant of all, to receive a Talia, a child or a servant in your name, a neglected people group in your name. Lord, we pray that this would translate into the way we do church, the way we worship, and the way we live our daily lives, that it's not about getting to the top, but living the life of a humble servant as Christ demonstrated to us. And if it means killing our name, Destroying our pride and just fasting and begging to be drowned with the spirit of humility, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to enter into a time of offering now. Um, So the electronic details are on the screen. Um, So please give as God compels your heart. I believe the Old Testament sets a healthy standard of tithing. Uh, It does set a standard of 10%. And I don't think it's prescriptive. I don't think it's like a a rule, a hard and fast rule across the board. Um, But the Old Testament does give us healthy principles uh, upon which we should shape our walk with the Lord Jesus. So I'll give you a moment We now conclude our service with the prayer given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.